Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 314. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, we have a fact article by Jimmy Rogers with his synthetic voices. Then we do an interview with one of the hot new writers out there, Wayne Simmons. Wayne's built his background in horror, but he's writing, everyone's talking about this new book he's wrote called Plastic Jesus. Got a great interview with Wayne Simmons. Then the main fiction is Alan Dean Foster, claim Blaine, Alan Dean Foster, one of the science fiction writers out there, man. one of the, guy, the, the, the legends, got a story by him as well. That is all coming into days. Show 314. I hope you will stick around and enjoy it. What I'll do straight away then is play Jimmy Rogers' synthetic voices and I'll chirp in, as you'll hear with Jimmy and, and his little production, you know, some of my comments as well after synthetic voices. Jimmy Squire. Hey there, Sophonauts. I'm Jimmy Rogers, and this is Synthetic Voices. Each month, I trawl through as many free, speculative audio fiction stories as I can find, so I can share my favorites here with you. You can find the show notes at scienceismagic.com, or look for the link in the show notes of this episode of Starship Sofa. This month, I'd like to drop a mention about Escape Artists. If that name isn't familiar, how about Escape Pod, Pseudopod, or Podcastle? See, you know who I'm talking about. Well, recently they posted a Metacast episode describing their financial plight. Essentially, they needed some serious funding to get through the rest of the year. They recently updated the community with another Metacast, this time thanking their fans for helping them raise another $30,000 in funding. That sounds like a lot, but here's the shocker. 
that will only last them 10 months. Yes, podcasts who pay their authors and sometimes narrators and staff have a lot of costs. So obviously, give to any of the Escape Artist podcasts. It's one lump fund, so be assured your money will go wherever it's most needed in that organization. They're one of the leaders of our podcasted fiction community, and their rising star has already inspired many others. We'll come back to the issue of donations in a few minutes, but first, let's jump into the top picks from October 2013. First up is Flying on My Hatred of My Neighbor's Dog by Shannon Garrity. It was featured on the Drabblecast, episode 298, and was about 27 minutes long. This is just the kind of genius I expect to see on the Drabblecast. You may have felt burning, seething rage at someone or something before, but are you a hater? That is, could you hate something so much that power companies could actually harness that hatred and power the globe? Our protagonist is one such hater, and his misadventures are recounted in this hilarious story. I was personally giggling throughout most of it. Next up is Event Horizon by Sunny Moraine. This was featured on Strange Horizons October issue and was about 42 minutes long. Good news, I'm happy to feature a new podcast on the show. Strange Horizons has been a longtime voice in the short fiction world, and now they have a fiction and poetry podcast. I urge you to check out their full feed in iTunes. There seems to be a Podbean page for the podcast, but very little specifically on the Strange Horizons website, if you're looking for more details. Or, of course, you can always click through the Synthetic Voices show notes at scienceismagic.com. Personally, I have a special place in my heart for stories that call to the spirit of fall. The rustle of fallen leaves, the chill in the air, and hungry living houses. Oh, or is that just Event Horizon? Yes, our protagonists, both of whom incidentally fall along the gay, queer spectrum, have found themselves in charge of feeding a house. Combine this with their difficulties in fending off the bullies at school, and you'll be able to see your way to a grisly conclusion. What separated this hungry house story from the pack for me was the look inside our female-bodied protagonist's head, seeing her contemplate not only her role in keeping the house fed, but also balancing that against her secret passion for our emotionally distant male-bodied hero. Her lack of any real fear toward the house keeps the story fresh and true to her young, if somewhat self-absorbed, voice. Another great story from last month was The Creature Recants by Dale Bailey. This was featured on Clark's World Magazine's October issue and was about 42 minutes long. Here's another beautifully written story from Clark's World, where the grotesque creature from the Black Lagoon looks for love and purpose in Hollywood. Surely he's not so different from us, aside from the diet of fish and the amphibious physiology. This Tinseltown tale is told out of chronological order, but eventually provides the rationale for his final decision, whether to stay with humans and follow human dreams, or return to his swamp and a life of meaningless serenity. The next story on my list is The Master Conjurer by Charlie Jane Anders. It was featured in Lightspeed Magazine's October issue and was about 39 minutes long. 
Setting aside the plot of this story for a moment, I loved how the world was set up. Everyone has access to magic, just like in our world, how everyone has access to technology. Is everyone good at using technology? The same concept applies to magic in our story, though the negative effects of a powerful spell are a bit more dire than a fried hard drive. Enter our protagonist, who somehow finds the key to performing spells without a magical downside. This launches him into a world of unwelcome celebrity and eventually sends him running from the media-crazy public. I love the way he is forced to face his past and come to terms with both his public status and his private demons. Next is Bits by Naomi Kritzer. It was featured in Clark's World Magazine's October issue and was about 29 minutes long. The quirky world of sex toys gets a bit quirkier as aliens look for ways to connect with their human partners. A hapless sex toy manufacturer is forced to face her discomfort with the idea of interspecies romance, and then must create a product that will suit everyone. This isn't some kind of tentacle-strewn nightmare, if that is what has just popped into your head, but rather a story of couples who want to overcome their biological incompatibility and need an open mind to make it happen. It was nice to see a story that was not only casually sex-positive, but comical and upbeat as well. My final top pick this month is Today's Friends by David J. Schwartz. It was featured on Starship Sofa, episode 310, time code 20 minutes, and was about 37 minutes long. At the mention of Starship Sofa, you would probably expect this story to be science fiction. This notion is probably encouraged by the Greys, big-eyed gray aliens a la X-Files, featured prominently in the story. Let me tell you that this is a straight-up horror story if I ever saw one. The post-invasion world is unsettlingly similar to our own, with just a few subtle changes sure to catch your attention. Most striking is the ever-present fear among those going about their daily lives. Schwartz does a fantastic job imparting the psychological terror of beings who can reach into your mind at any time and have no qualms about doing so whenever it suits them. Okay, with the top picks put to bed, let's go back to podcast funding for a moment. Podcasting requires money, and like any business, a podcast's biggest headache is cash flow. Sure, they can beg for money occasionally and get a big bump, but what every podcast editor really wants is a regular stream of cash that they can count on, month in and month out. There's no profiteering going on here. Super popular and successful podcasts can sometimes pay their editors with a couple beers per month. That's our current benchmark for success. So what can you do? What can we do? I like that second one better. I'm always a fan of community solutions. For instance, we here at Synthetic Voices have a small but growing community. We have about a 100 subscribers and unique downloads per month, not including all of our Starship Sofa listeners. Also, we have a real in-person podcast discussion group that meets once a month here in the D.C. area. In the future, I hope to form more franchise discussion groups in other cities. Oops, did I tip my master plan? Leaving that for a moment, all of this means that we have the potential to get together and do something great. 
I'm currently working on a bigger strategy for harnessing our community to fund podcasts, big and small. But here's step one. In the coming month or two, I'm going to populate a grid of podcasts to which you can subscribe. I'll share not only their name and PayPal link, but also any perks of membership. That's right. Some of the more established podcasts already offer a kind of second-tier stream of premium content. Now, I know podcasts are based on that beautiful free model, but here's a metaphor that might help make the transition to freemium, if you'll call it that, go down a little smoother. For years and years, people have blanched at high cable TV bills and complained about all the useless channels they're forced to buy in a lump. The alternative to this is called a la carte TV, where you can pick only the channels you want. The big telecoms haven't taken to this idea, as you can imagine, but fortunately we can have that model with podcasts, and arguably with our entertainment in general. Almost all podcasts are free, but if you want to specialize and become a member of that podcast's community, often getting great perks in the process, then you can buy a subscription. Not only will that ensure your favorites stay around, but you can honestly claim that you're a big part of making that podcast happen, more so than just subscribing to cable for your favorite TV show. So what are these perks? Well, the Drabblecast creates B-Sides episodes exclusively for listeners who subscribe. Starship Sofa is working on similar perks for Sofanauts subscribers, granting access to the old stories and producing new ones for subscribers. The always scary No Sleep podcast has added a ton of premium stories on top of their already impressive free show, offering a season pass to get the frankly mind-boggling number of stories they produce each week. These are excellent ideas. Make more content and reward those specialized users who want to give more than a one-time thank you. I'm generally against neutering a show or creating just teasers, just to force people to the meaty content. But there's no reason not to produce an even bigger show that will genuinely give people a sense of worth for their contributions. So in that spirit, I've made a decision. I'm frankly pretty strapped for cash at the moment, but I've decided to unsubscribe from Netflix, which is about 8 bucks a month, and put that money toward a Drabblecast B-side subscription. I listen to Norm Sherman's fabulous weird fiction podcast, far more than I stream episodes of Stargate SG-1. So he's going to get that money instead, about 10 bucks a month. If you find you're in the same situation, I hope you'll sign up with your own favorite podcasts. I'll let you know when I've put up the podcast subscription guide page so you can find the best place to plunk down your hard-earned dough. If you don't have a lot of disposable income, that's fine, but maybe encourage your friends who all listen to the same podcast to get together and buy a subscription together. You could have five people try and buy a subscription just to get that money to the podcast. I know the editors will appreciate it. Enough of my soapboxing for now. Let's get back to the fiction. The first feature section for this month is Ongoing Fiction Podcasts You Should Know. I want to mention two podcasts that don't readily lend themselves to monthly features here on Synthetic Voices, but deserve some publicity. The first is Welcome to Night Vale. It's a rather dry public radio station keeping you up on all of the goings-on in the desert community of Night Vale. Maybe you want to hear the community calendar for the week. It's handy to know that Wednesday was canceled. And get the latest updates from the Sheriff's Secret Police, who advise you 
to never enter the dog park or even acknowledge its existence. It's a weird show, to be sure, with Lovecraftian overtones and petty rivalries. I have been slowly hooked as I have listened to more and more episodes. One does not have to catch up from the beginning, but I recommend it as the show is only about a year old and has some real gems that you might otherwise miss. Plus, it's ongoing, so you can expect more goodness from Night Vale Community Radio for at least a little longer. The second ongoing series is The Secret World Chronicle. It is a long-running series of superhero stories. The narrator, Veronica Jaguer, does a good job voicing each character, who can range from American to Russian to German to inhuman. There is a dense web of characters and relationships, but the military action helps break up some of the more melodramatic episodes. Occasionally, I am caught off guard by the language of the characters. How many of them seem to talk like hipster college students one moment, and then perform a precise tactical breach in the next, or how aggressively all the characters abbreviate each other's names, even if they're only somewhat well acquainted. That said, there is a serious comic book vibe throughout, so maybe that's just part of the ambiance. Some of Spider-Man's dialogue could be downright silly at times, but you don't hear me complaining to Stan Lee about that. Our next feature section is Women Touched by Magic. All four of these stories have leading ladies with a magical bent. The first story is Cassandra by C.J. Cherry. It was featured in Starship Sofa, episode 307, time code 1750. It was about 25 minutes long. If you could see the future of the world around you, that would be pretty trippy, right? What if that world was on the verge of a catastrophe? You would eventually see that world destroyed before its time. This is the plight of crazy Alice, who can hardly stay sane among the future ruins of her town. An interesting perspective piece, for sure. Next is The Witches of Athens by Laura Elena Donnelly. It was featured in Strange Horizons October issue and was about 25 minutes long. This is a charming little piece of urban fantasy. Two witches of opposite demeanor in opposite ends of town seek to unite two shy young men. They must think creatively after a failed attempt, and this leads to some personal development on the part of the two witches. The next story in this feature section is Emily 501 by Tamara Hladek. This was featured in the Journey Into podcast, Journey number 80, and was about 55 minutes long. Another great Seeing Ear Theater find by the Journey Into podcast. If you're not familiar, Seeing Ear Theater was a short-lived project by the Sci-Fi Channel to bring radio dramas to the internet. While the project ended, the stories live on, and this one is superb. Follow a female explorer as she investigates the subterranean dwelling of a long-dead civilization. Something odd is going on with the sound in the caves. In fact, maybe it's having an effect on her, too. The audio effects in this story are excellent and added a lot to the ambiance of the piece. The final Ladies in Magic story is Right Turns by Tim Pratt. It was featured in Podcastle episode 283 and was about 33 minutes long. Would you buy a house with a labyrinth in the basement? Well, you're a speculative fiction reader, so probably. But even so, it's quite an odd conundrum. 
A married couple learned to live with an enigma beneath their feet for a little while, but eventually one of them decides to investigate. I love the mystery of the labyrinth and how well the author evokes place magic, that is, the magic of a place itself, beyond any monsters or artifacts contained within. Our final feature section this month is Striking Out into the Unknown. These stories ask, what's out beyond the next hill, beyond the next day, beyond the next generation? The first story is Bloody Mary by Norman Partridge. This was featured in Nightmare Magazine's October issue and was about 56 minutes long. For some reason, the few Halloween pieces I came across this month didn't tickle my fancy, but here is one sure to get your heart thumping. Many dark forces have been used to end the world in fiction before, but it rarely is Halloween itself. In this story, Halloween occurred one night and then never let up, sending monsters from every lore after the general populace. A young boy who has survived the worst of it finds himself confronted by a deadly female loner and must survive not only the monsters, but her lessons as well. I don't know what to make of this story, especially the rather twisty, turdy second act, but it stuck with me, and I'm happy to feature it here for the imaginative post-apocalyptic setting alone. The next story of the unknown is Driven by Alan V. Hare. This was featured on Makeshift Stories, episode 71, and was about 28 minutes long. A nice hallmark that you live in a dystopia is when you see the government putting senior citizens to work to earn their golden year's bread. Here we meet a grumpy old man who has been tasked with testing out a new automated car. Things don't go as planned, however, as the machine intelligence goes beyond its built-in parameters. Our protagonist can pull the plug any time, but will he? Does he dare face the wrath of a dissatisfied, all-powerful government? I should mention that this story, too, is from a podcast new to Synthetic Voices. You can find out more about Makeshift Stories over at their website, makeshiftstories.com. Most of the work appears to be the creation of one author, Alan V. Hare. The next story is Ghost Days by Ken Liu. It was featured in Lightspeed Magazine's October issue and was about one hour long. Here's an interesting look at three generations of young people on a cultural precipice. The piece starts in the distant future, in a world alien to our own. A girl bred to live in the harsh conditions struggles to understand why past lives and peoples matter so much to her teachers. Following the journey of an heirloom past to her, we are taken to colonial China and a post-war America. Each vignette expands the conflict between heritage and progress until we once again are whisked back to the alien planet, which itself shares a bit of history with our hybrid protagonist. A complex story about complex topics. Our final featured story of the unknown is Possible Monsters by Will McIntosh. It was featured in Starship Sofa, episode 309, at time code 16 minutes. It was about 50 minutes long. This story of altered perceptions is sure to stoke your imagination. 
In a backwater town, a young man returns to his family home to find a bizarre monster living inside. While it turns out to be rather docile, it bestows a gift upon him with unforeseen consequences. He is forced to face down the would-bees and could-have-beens of his life, along with the disappointment of his present existence. It's a strange little story, but I hope you'll enjoy it. Well, that just about does it for Synthetic Voices this month. All of the music used in this episode is distributed under an extensive series of Creative Commons licenses, which you can find along with the show notes over at scienceismagic.com. On that same site, you can find our dedicated podcast feed, or search us out on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next month. There you go. Jimmy, what can I say? Thank you so much. And to be quite honest, straight away, do you know what I mean? The guy, what, do you know what I mean? This is what gets us, you know, why I think Starship Sofa has survived so long. Jimmy's there prepared to kind of cut his Netflix bill and pay, you know, Drabblecast Norm's production just to do that. Do you know what I mean? And good on you, Jimmy. Do you know what I mean? If kind of everyone was like that and, you know, we wouldn't have any trouble at all. But we do. Do you know what I mean? And, you know, it's... and. I see. I think it was a couple of weeks ago. I heard about Escape Pod's financial trouble, and they were hitting the wall. You know what I mean? It was just hideous to think that thing might go under. Do you know what I mean? That was. I think they might have been going about eight months, something like that. You know, they were the inspiration for Starship Sova. Do you know what, I mean? what Steve Ely did over there? And yes, it's totally different now. You know, it's a kind of business concern and all sorts of things. But you know what I mean? The kind of money they're talking just to survive, you know, thank God, our little network there just kind of runs on air fumes, you know, like petrol fumes compared to them, but we all kind of need the funding, do you know what I mean, and that's exactly why donations, you know, certainly help Starships over, but I think what Jimmy said there about the kind of, the week in, the week out, you know what I mean, them payments coming in, yeah, you, you kind of, it's lovely to get the kind of one-off donations, don't get us wrong, do you know what I mean, I just... I've had to buy some new headphones. Actually, when I was doing the interview with Wayne that's coming up, I can see on me monitor, you know, I was recording Wayne on one channel, and I was recording myself on another. I could hear my headphones just bleeding into Wayne's. When Wayne was talking, you know, there was bleeding into my silence channel there. And I was thinking, oh. So I've had to kind of stump up cat. I don't, I don't like spending. <laughs> stump, you know, and everything just costs. Do you know what I mean? So... And a little bit, I find as well, the kind of landscape's changing, do you know what I mean? And yeah, everyone, you know, it certainly helps out. But it just seems there's more of, I don't know why, but there's just more costs and it's just, you know, so we've got to go, keep going. And monthly donations, you know, and that's why I'm kind of guessing I'm, I'm setting up the, the sofa notes, the, you know, the premium site as well, just to make sure... Those things kind of are the bedrock. You know, I've always kind of, I've always blotted on about this, you know, being the kind of the bedrock of Starship Sova is getting that funding. Do you know what I mean? That just, if it's, if it just keeps coming in, do you know what I mean? And, and that's, that's, that's all we want. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, <laughs> I love that as well. Buy a couple of pints for the editor. Yes, that would be very nice. You know what I mean? Kind of sort of take it from the, the good wife. And well, have you not got any money? Have you, why is it always me buying the drinks? So, yes, please, you know, again, I'll kind of keep on mentioning because Jimmy mentioned there about Sofa Notes, but I've kind of my vision of Sofa Notes is just a whole different experience on just content. And don't get us wrong, we have some fantastic content. And you know what's really nice is now Adam kind of goes out and sources the stories and everything like that. But 
So it's been a while before I've actually, you know, had to go cap in hand to a rider. You know what? Never leaves you. Never leaves you. This big lad's got it. I've got a Hugo Award story, which was, remember Amy H. Sturgis, Ames was talking about the Jack the Ripper in her little fact articles, and she mentioned the story, and it, it pricked up me ears there. I thought, oh, I'll try and get that one. It was the singular habit of wasps, which was a Hugo win story. In ninety, I think nineteen ninety four, Jeffrey Landis got that, got a Hugo nomination story by Mike Resnick. You know, and I'll tell you what on my little list because I'm I'm chuffed a bit. It's like I say, it never leaves you. The old fella still got it. We've got two James Morrow stories there, and this is all before the premium site. But again, it's not going to be just kind of you know. I wanted so much more than just to kind of dish out content. You know, that's a kind of main factor, but. I, I, you know, my kind of philosophy on it is going to be so much more. We've got a couple of stories by James Morrow, four by David Brin, two by Ian Sales, Jason Sanford's thrown over three, Jeff Lane give us two, say I've got a Hugo Award one by nominee by Mike Resnick, three by Paul DeFilippo, and a Hugo winning one by Jeffrey Landis. And that's just after a week. Do you know what I mean? Some of them are going to be turned into... Our very own little e-stories, you know, where you can just put them straight on your devices. You know, they're going to be kind of wrapped in a sofa note skin. And we're all kind of working on that. And some are going to be kind of sorted out in audio as well. And I'm working with, as you might guess, Nick Cam to get them sorted out. So we've got some audio as well. Because, yeah, content is massive. But, again, my... And I'll keep on, you know, preaching, you know, at the pulpit about my philosophy of sofa notes until it kind of kicks off. So, you know, but just harking back to what Jimmy said about this kind of donations coming in or, you know, wanting like a funding week in, week out. That's what kind of counts. Do you know what I mean? It's just knowing that the next month's safe, the month after that's safe, you know, because I I really think that's the kind of the holy grail. You know what I mean? That's what will keep the show going. Knowing that we've got the funding set in place and it's, it's kind of auto and it kind of comes in and, you know, Two ways I, I kind of see that it's working for Starships over is donations. Yeah, some might not want to get, you know, sofa notes. Some might not want to, you know, have got enough content, and but they just feel honoured and, you know, it's the right thing to do to kind of support. And not just Starships over, do you know what I mean? Support a, a podcast, any podcast. And then I've got the, the kind of extra special, you know, sturdiness of to keep the show going, which will, will be sofa notes, you know, so... There you go. Again, I've blotted on enough, but it's, it means a lot. You know what I mean? We want to keep this thing going. We want them all to keep going. And we've, these are the ways we've got to kind of try and do it to make sure we can get it out free for everyone just to listen to, but keep going as well. Do you know? So there we go. Now, I think it's the 1st of December, there's a new novel coming out called Plastic Jesus by a writer called Wayne Simmons. And I was very honoured to kind of have a chat with Wayne a couple of days ago about this new novel and about, you know, Wayne's from Belfast, he grew up in kind of Belfast area. And it was a great interview, like I say, a lovely guy. And, you know, the whole kind of the Twittersphere and Facebook's talking about this new novel, this kind of, because Wayne's from a horror background and has delved into the kind of science fiction world. And like I say, what we're about to hear now is an interview I've carried out with Wayne. So Wayne, it's nice to have you on, and you have got a new novel out as well, Plastic Jesus. Now, Wayne, what I'm really interested in, you know, is it 
because we, we a lot of people know you now as like a horror, do you know what I mean? What was it like moving into the science fiction writing? You know, you're, you're kind of based your upbringing or your writing is all blood and guts. Now you're, you're kind of <laughs> branching into the, the science fiction. Was it a difficult transition? Uh, weirdly, I mean, I've always said that the writing is just an extension of being a fan. Um, and I've been a fan of horror for a long time. Uh, I suppose since my, since starting to watch the likes of Hammer Horror and all that stuff in the you know the early eighties, um, it's kind of what I was brought up on. But I was also brought up on a lot of sci-fi. Um, I remember Buck Rogers and TV. <laughs> um, you know the old Battlestar Galactica. All that stuff was pretty much part of my dad as well as a kid. Um, so you know, as a fan, evolving. The next logical step for me was to try and write something which, within the sci-fi world. Uh, one of my favorite films, well, my actual, my, my ultimate film, I suppose, um, is Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Um, I think it's just absolutely fantastic. I love the noir elements. I love the kind of, uh, the timeless quality to it, you know. It's just that, that whole dystopian, grimy underbelly of a world that's, you know, realized by Ridley Scott in that, in the, in that film. Appealed to me and... I suppose that got me thinking about the, the book Plastic Jesus, which I've been describing as really a, a love letter to Ridley Scott for writing or for filming Blade Runner, as well as a lot of noir and neo-noir writers that I read, like Krista Faust and uh, Day Keen and Lawrence Block and uh, pretty much anything that um, hard case crime puts out. So, yeah, a short, a long answer short, it's just really the next evolution in me being a fan. And what's it like now? You know, you've wrote the book there now. Are you quite happy that, you know, you think, ah, I think I've, I've pulled that off? <laughs> it's weird because, you know, I talk, to, I talk about this to, to other writers. I did pretty much sit and write and rewrite the same manuscript all my life, you know, <laughs> adding, it, adding it into into pure oblivion, you know. And, uh, you know, at the end, maybe you'd have one sentence left. <laughs> and that would be your novel that started off at 80,000 words. But um, so you're never happy with the finished product. Um, and I think the thing about a, a, a book is that it's recorded there for everybody to see uh, how you were writing at a certain time and place. And so, yeah, I mean, I look back at that book. I've wrote it over probably three years, just in and out, different edits and, you know, honing it and, uh, and improving it. Um, and I'm very happy with it now. But you know, give me a year, <laughs> I'll find fault with it, you know. Uh, but yeah, it's it's an expression of where I'm at right now, and I'm, as that, I'm really, really pleased with it. I just can't wait to get it out there and to, to see what other people think. Well, it comes out the 1st of December. Now, is it just coming out in the UK, or is it going, you know, global? Um, I think, well, Salt have got the UK and US rights, so I hope they're putting it out in the US as well. Um, but uh, with them being a UK uh, publisher, you're, you're going to see it more in stores like, you know, Waterstones and Forbidden Planet and stuff over here. Uh, I don't think it'll get into the stores over in the States, look, I could be wrong. Um, so, yeah, it's it's hitting 1st of December, and um, yeah, I'm just really excited. Well, a little bit of Jesus for Christmas, eh? Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly, sir. Tell us a little bit about it then, Wayne, if you can, without giving, without giving yeah, the, the plot away, you know, the end in a way. Sure, sure. Um, it's basically, a, if, if you like a cyberpunk, and I know that's very unfashionable to be writing cyberpunk in the uh, in this time of steampunk, really. But uh, it's um, it's a story about a guy who's, who's pretty much down his luck, as all good noir stories start. 
Um, he's watching. He's called Johnny. He's a programmer or a code guy, as is this description in this world that I've I've kind of created. Um, and he's uh, just watching his wife pass away. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of grief in that, so he heads to the local pub, um, finds himself a hooker, um, and it all goes from bad to worse. Um, but he, he tries to get himself back on his feet by taking on a, a rather elaborate request to create a Jesus program for virtual reality. Now, we're, we're in, a, in a world which is post-Holy War. Um, the Middle East is completely non-existent. It's just a big hole in the earth. Um, oil is, is just is gone. So people are using kind of um, like wind and steam and and uh, different kinds of energy source. Um, and uh, so, you know, basically the whole idea of religion is a bad word. So this company tasks Johnny, our main character, to write uh, a program which is going to rebrand religion and make it cool again. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just about Johnny's story as he uh, as he constructs this program. And the the program being unleashed against or upon the world. What's just you know your main your main character Johnny? What's how is how is he like you know like you say he's just been with his kind of or his wife's died or something. How do you do you get your characters you know to to come alive? I do a lot of free writing actually because uh, I need to get the number characters myself. So rather than doing a lot of planning, you know, like some writers would do chapter by chapter plans and have it all mapped out and know exactly where they're going. I can't write like that. I've tried it, but I, I just can't do it. So what I do is I'll maybe start off with, like, for example, with Classic Jesus, I start off with Johnny at the bedside of his wife. And there's interactions between him um, and his dying wife uh, and um, the, the doctor and nurse in the, in the, uh, the ward as well. And all of that kind of helps me to get to know the character. So it just evolves to, you know, well, well, Johnny's just lost his wife. What does he do? Well, he hits the drink hard. Where does, it, where, does, where does he hit the drink? So, you know, you got to invent this kind of bar and make it, a, I try to make it a kind of noir type bar, you know, if the, the, the barman behind uh, the bar, kind of like this historical figure. Um, a little bit like, uh, do you know uh, Jack Torrance in The Shining? Yes, yes. He's always talking to the barman. So I, I had this idea of that, uh, only I, I brought more life to the barman and gave him more of a role within the story. Uh, he is only, his name is the barman. But he, he becomes an integral part within the story as well. So you have Johnny interacting with all the people around him. And, and through that, I start to get to know him as a character. Now, that style of writing or that way of writing is going to involve a lot of heavy editing. Um, but I'm good for that, you know. Um, and it helps me, again, just get to know all the characters and uh, uh, just hone the story better. So, so that's, why I, that's why I roll, really, with the writing side of it anyway. You must, surely, though, you must, you know, I think... F- from my point of view, free writing must be scary as hell because you, surely you must know the ending or, or know where you're going when, you, when you're first starting, do you? <laughs> not really, no, not at all. Um, what I do is I make notes to myself um, as I go along and then, as I say, a lot of heavy editing. So it's probably the long way around to write in a book. I don't think it saves me any time. Um, and yes, eventually an ending might strike me or I might work out where I want to be. Um, and if so, then I'll make a note of, note of that to myself. But that could change then by the time the book finishes, um, as more characters get involved and uh, and more people come on board. So, yeah, it's a strange way of doing, doing things, um, and I'm surprised it works. I'm surprised it's worked for five books. Cause <laughs> this is my fifth book. Um, but yeah, I've, I've tried other ways of, of writing and, and find them not to work, you know, the, the heavy planning side of things. It doesn't really work for me. What, what, do you, so, what, what, uh, what, what kind of stops you then with the, the, the heavy planning? Do you just kind of 
you currently what is going to go down that way? Does he just think it, it's he doesn't go down that way? He's going to go left and you know go a totally different route? Is that what you come up against? Probably, yeah. It's a lot of it's to do with keeping it fresh for myself as a writer. I get very easily distracted. Um, and with Facebook and all kinds of other things out there, you just kind of like, um, it's easier as a writer to get distracted, you know. So you're trying to keep it fresh for yourself. And I find the best way to do that is to to kind of retain that element of surprise for me as a writer as well. Where I want to be ultimately is whenever the characters take over and start writing the story themselves. And that sounds horribly pretentious, um, but it's not. It's just, it's, it's reality for me as a writer is I, I start to kind of feel these characters um, as if they're friends, as if they're, they're real people that I know, and uh, their story becomes that, more, that, that much more vivacious for me then. It's a little bit like, I remember reading a book called um, Dreams of Leaving by a guy called Rupert Thompson. I don't know if you've ever read any of his stuff, Tony, but he's, he's an excellent writer. No, I haven't. He, he writes kind of like a dystopian kind of literary fiction, if you like, for one of a better work word but it's uh he's got quite a an economic prose style which i really like um but that book in particular dreams of leaving I remember turning the last page and feeling like you know i'd lost a lot of my friends as i finished the book and i, I always want always want to kind of try and achieve that for my own books you know at least for myself as a writer whether it's it's the same for the readers i don't know but you'd have to ask them but um, you know, if I can retain that as a writer, then then I think I'm I'm, to, I'm moving towards writing the book that I, I'm hoping to be able to write. You know, that's a really nice way of like putting it, William, because I think that that happens and it doesn't happen that often. You know, I mean, it certainly happened with me, and I remember the first time it was it was Clive Barker's Weave World, and we were on like in a, a, right. a holiday traveling through France, and I just remember coming near that end of that book and just like right, I'll allow myself one page. One page, that's all I'm gonna, you know, because he just knew it was gonna come to the end. And you know, I mean, yeah. so if you can, if you can, if you can pull that off, that's tr- you know, truly tremendous. What is is it a standalone book then, Wayne? Is it or is it, is it got a, a big sprawling arc and there's going to be sequels and oodles of other things in this plastic Jesus universe? I would very much like to return to Lark City, which is a setting for um, plastic Jesus. Um, and uh, I've already got an idea in my head. It's a, a kind of revenge thriller that's been kicking around uh, for a while. And I've, I've, I've had an idea of where it needs to be set, but it's, it's, it's always eluded me as to, to where exactly it should be set. And, and I, know, I knew it, was, it should be a noir book. Um, I knew it should be set in the kind of near future. And then I realized, well, why don't you just set it in Dark City? Because that's, that's you know, a ready-made kind of environment for it. So, uh, yeah, I've just decided tonight, actually, weirdly, <laughs> uh, that I'm going I'm to write this book, um, you know, basically start in January uh, and uh, set it within Lark City and make it the second book uh, within Lark City. So there you go, an exclusive for the Starship Sofa. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And what about then just, out, you know, the kind of the business side of it then, Wayne? Have you got, or will you get a, a publisher for that? Or do you, do you have to kind of still tout this one around? Maybe Salt might not take it, or do you think they're up for it? I don't know. I guess the, the bottom line is whether Plastic Jesus does well enough, you know. Um, and then again, I suppose we'll just have to submit it to the editor, see if he thinks the idea is good enough, start writing it, you know, and see if by the end of it he still thinks the idea is good enough. Um, you know, I suppose uh, when you're kind of a mid-list writer, you're still you're working from book to book. 
I have mean like for example with Snowbooks, I have uh, done deals in the past for the, the zombie stuff, and you know I've maybe said I'm writing. I want to write the next book within the flu series, which is uh, the, one of the zombie series I write, and they've accepted that basically based on how well the first book is done. They've accepted the second installment without me having even written a, a single word of it. So that can happen, but it's all about building a rapport and relationship with your, your publisher. Um, on your customers and your client base and um, for them to, to get a feel for the kind of guy you are, uh, being able to deliver what you say you're going to deliver, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's just one book at a time at the moment, really. I mean, th- so this must be then the, the day job, Wayne, is it? Am I right? This, it's half a day job, actually. I've got a weird um, <laughs> situation. Uh, I write um, in the morning time up until about 11 or 12. And then I walk dogs. We've got a, myself and my partner have got a business, uh, walking dogs, and uh, I do that for the remainder of the day. And between the writing and walk, walking dogs, uh, the, the bills get paid. <laughs> you know what? I, I wish you were over here, mind you, because I've got two Dobermans and a uh, Springer Spaniel, or a, a, a work in Spaniel, and oh, that would be very nice. And it's funny, mind you, because we've got some kind of big fields up here, and there's a couple of people there now who've got the vans, you know, like kind of dog walking. Oh, yeah. So it seems to be like taken off, and, and the daughter, my daughter's the apprentice dog groomer. So it just seems, mind you, that little avenue of like dogs, you know, dog anything doggy is big business oh it's big it's big yeah um and it's you know you can understand that as people want to go out to work and stuff and they're, they're worried about leaving their dog at home so they need somebody to come in at lunchtime and look after it so yeah it's great but it's it's wonderful because it, it gives you the well it gives me the freedom you know being self-employed gives you the freedom to kind of make your work your day job work around your other work as well um and it means that you know because there's the two of us if i need to go to a convention or something then we can kind of uh, get the, you know, my dogs covered and um, off I go to the convention without having to take a holiday or anything like that. There's a downside to being self-employed, of course. You never really clock out, do you? You're always kind of like uh, know, I mean, even on the with, clock. It's but, exactly the same, mind you, with, with this show. Do you know what I mean? It just, it, you kind of eat, sleep and, you know, breathe the, breathe the, you know, what's going on. So, Of course. So tell, wait then, can we just take you back then? Tell us about your childhood then. What's because I'm 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 fascinated. No, am I right in thinking you grew up in Belfast? You were born in Belfast. That's right. Yeah. Uh, well, I was born actually in a little town south of Belfast called Portadown. Um, it was once described as the the Alabama of the North, <laughs> and for good reason. <laughs> um, it's it's yeah. It's it's kind of like um, very religious kind of place. Uh, very parochial. And uh, probably best known for its um, its people's uh, ability to rat good. <laughs> you know, um, some of my earliest memories are just being, you know, amidst rats and bomb scares and, and stuff like that. And uh, you know, and I grew up in the in the eighties, so it was the, in the heart of the troubles. You know, and that kind of stuff has obviously uh, impacted upon the work I do. A lot of the stuff I write has been set in Belfast. Passage is the first book actually not set within Belfast. And so with the zombie stuff, you had the mixing the whole idea of sectarianism within the zombie metaphor, much the same way as maybe Romero mixed things like consumerism and racism into his work, you know. Um, so Plastic Jesus, I suppose, it, it has a, a certain commentary on religion and that whole kind of fundamentalist idea of religion. Um, and uh, it brings a certain amount of that in as well. So it mightn't be that popular amongst the more conservative folks, shall we say. 
So what what was it like then? We growing up, you know, because we like say we're in England, we hear about the troubles and everything. But what's it like, you know, day to day growing up with that on your doorstep? I think it's weird because when you're there and you're amongst it, you don't actually, you know, and that's all you know. You don't realise that there's anything different. So occasionally we would have maybe ventured over to say Blackpool on holidays. I remember as a kid, maybe talking to somebody in Blackpool who, you know, the folks were talking to them. They're kind of like saying, well, what's it like for you back there? Do you have to like run for safety as soon as you get off the, the boat and stuff like that? And people thought it was like that. And I can't blame them because pretty much that's how it was reported in the news. You just, you know, it was just bombs and, you know, soldiers and stuff like that. And that was a reality. I mean, I, I remember a lot of helicopters flying overhead. I remember a lot of like soldiers walking about with the big guns, just walking across your garden and stuff like that. But you just assumed that's where everywhere else was like, you know. So it was, uh, yeah, it was colourful. It, it, it probably, when you look back on it as an adult, you can see how it affects you, you know, um, when you're growing up on something like that. But when you're actually there, you just assume that that's the reality for everybody else because everybody around you and your own little slice of the world is experiencing the same thing. And what, just out of interest, you know, I'm, I'm just fascinated, what was your schooling like then over there at the times, you know? Um, I mean, probably similar to any other sense of school. You, well, I suppose that the main thing is that you're segregated. But I think there's a certain amount of that over in the UK too. You'll have Church of England schools and Roman Catholic schools and um, whatever other kinds of schools. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I don't think there's really an awful lot of difference in terms of the schooling side of it. It's more, I suppose, when you think back on the news reports, and you know, it's almost like every news report start off with a list of who got killed that day. Um, you know, it's it's almost like a kind of perverted Monty Python sketch or something like. And that that was the reality of what uh, what what it was like growing up. Well, I mean, it's a I, lot better. I know what exactly what you're saying. Do you know what I mean? And especially when you say, like, you know, someone was asking you, do you have to run for cover? Because you know, when you like, say yeah. in the UK, there's just that you know the BBC news coverage, any news coverage, you, you honestly thought that's what it was like. You know, you're thinking bloody hell, because every day on the news, you know, the, there's like the army's there patrolling. There's there's you know kids are wearing masks and there's bottles getting thrown, and you're just thinking. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'll tell you a very weird story, actually. I remember whenever I was, um, I was probably about 16 or 17. And this is kind of like in the 90s now when it was still pretty bad, but not as bad as, say, the 70s or late 70s or 80s. But uh, I, I decided that I wanted to do art, GCSE. But, um, you know, I wasn't so good at it. So I took, um, I took night class. And uh, I was uh, amongst all these kind of people, all adults and stuff, and there's a mixture of there's me and my mate taking this art class. But uh, there was a guy across the way, and uh, you know, across the, the classroom, and, and he was drawing a picture of Portadown, where we came from. I was levelled in an explosion. <laughs> and it, was, <laughs> it was really bizarre, because like, I was kind of like, well, that's a bit strange. The very, the very next week, Portadown was levelled with an explosion. <laughs> I have no word of a lie, Tony. Um, but to be honest, you, you couldn't really see it as a, as any kind of visionary piece of art. He probably just drew it because half a, half of Northern Ireland had been levelled by explosions. And that was the kind of reality of the place you're growing up in. So uh, yeah, it, it's it's strange because you think back on it, and you, I remember that bomb going off, and I remember where I was. Really? Um, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was just the town centre was pretty much levelled, 
Um, and I live just about, I would say, two miles out of the town centre. And I remember just the windows shaking. Right. <laughs> and there, there goes Porter Down. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's weird because here I am kind of laughing about it. And I think that's the thing about Northern Irish people is we we have an ability to kind of reflect back in those times and and kind of uh, find uh, the humorous side to it. Um, and, it, you know, obviously it was a very serious situation. It still kind of is, but there's a lot of humor to be gained from it as well. And I think uh, Northern Irish people just have that ability to kind of see the, the, the darker side of humor. Um, I'm getting back to the right, and I think I, I pollute my books with that kind of dark humor. It's not a it's not a blatant humor. It's not a kind of canned laughter commentary. Um, but there's definitely um, you know a, a kind of dark streak of, uh, of dystopian humor going on there. You know. So when did you in and decide you wanted to be a writer? You know, has it been like a, a lifelong thing for you? I think so. I mean, uh, you're a bit of a, a sci-fi fantasy fan, obviously. Um, do you remember the Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston books? The who, sorry? The Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston books, the fighting fantasy books. Oh, no, no. No, they're, they're kind of like, um, they're a bit like Choose Your Own Adventure. You turn to page 15. Right. And you you kind of like fight uh, orcs and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, but I remember starting to collect those. Um, I'm sure some of the listeners would be familiar with them. Fighting fantasy game books, um, and they were written by two guys, Ian Livingstone and Steve Jackson. You know that actually and does was, ring a bell, mind you. But I don't know if I've read them or getting them kind of because it just—I mean, I'll get—we'll we'll get back to this. But that was a kind of strange one. I never actually read a book until I was about twenty-two. Do you know what I mean? I was too busy going out lighting fires and being a little tinker. You know what I mean? When I was <laughs> when I was a young, one. and I never, honestly, never. And then just just so happens, I, I think it was I stayed at an old girlfriend's house. I had to babysit the house. And there was a, a C, yeah. one of the C.S. Lewis books in there. I think it was the very first one in that line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, you know, oh, right, um, yes. trilogy. And I was there for two or three days, and I, I thought, well, I'll, 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 I'll try. Do you know what I mean? And that was it. The yeah, yeah. floodgates opened after that. Do you know what I mean? It was like kind of yeah. the, the light was switched on. So, but that's when just it's the name Livingston that's kind of ringing a bell. So I don't know if there was like school books, you know, and we there was book clubs and everything like that. And I would get books from the book club, you know, at school, but I don't know, I never read anything, so, but that Livingston yeah, name I mean, sure I would, rings a bell. I would say we're probably of a, of a similar age, are we? Um, do you remember the Puffin Book Club? Used to be a wee leaflet coming to school. Yes. yes. You remember it? <laughs> well, they, they were, uh, that's where I got first introduced to these books, because it would have had a list of, you know, just there have been the next Steve Jackson, the Livingston book. Um, and as I say, they were kind of like... Um, they're great. I mean, I, I picked them up. You get them in charity shops, and I still find myself picking them up and flicking them through them and starting to kind of get drawn into it, you know. But it's uh, it's like a game and a book mixed together. So, like, you have your dice and, you know, pencil and paper, and uh, it, the story takes you and asks you to make a choice. And if you go left in a certain junction, you've got to go to page 15. If you go right, you go to page 24 or whatever, you know. And so you kind of move your way through the book. So it's it's a really great way to get into reading because you know it's interactive. I think actually they've decided to make them uh, adaptable now for Android phones. So maybe that's where you saw the uh, report on it, or why the name Livingston's familiar. But that was kind of the start for me. So then after that, I got into um, I think pretty much soon after that, I started to read things like Stephen King, and that's when I really got turned on to reading, you know, and uh, literature. 
Uh, Carrie, for example, is just my absolute favorite book in the whole world. It's just phenomenal. Um, and from then on, just the, the appetite grew and grew. So when, when did I start writing? I suppose I always had an interest in writing. Even as a kid, you know, the kind of Friday essay. You, you write your Friday story in school. I loved that and I always got into it. And I was just trying to like write stories like, you know, what I was reading in the game books with, you know, orcs and demons and stuff like that. And scaring the bollocks off my teachers who died <laughs> like they were, they were reading this stuff from a seven-year-old or whatever. But, uh, yeah, so then I just kind of, I never really thought of, of writing professionally until 2008, whenever, um, or no, sorry, 2005, whenever I read uh, David Moody's Autumn. And it's like a zombie book. Uh, only it was set within the UK, as opposed to many of his own books around then, which were set in the US. So I kind of started thinking about Belfast and how it'd be a great setting for a zombie book, and and I suppose it all just kind of grew from there. You know, most of all, it's just it's a bit like yourself, Tony. It's it's about being a fan first and foremost, and whenever you you become so consumed by something, you, there, there comes a point when you just have to get involved in some way. And for me, it started off from me interviewing people like Dave Moody and other writers and kind of, you know, taking an interest in from that perspective until I started to want to get involved myself and started writing things and maybe sending them off to likes of Dave and seeing what he thought it was like. And and because he is so kind enough to say, you know, yeah, that, that's pretty good. That, that kind of gave me the confidence to, to try something try something else. And, and eventually it grew into the, the first novel, Drop Dead Gorgeous, um, which was released in 2008 by Permitted Press. And re-released by Snowbooks in 2011. So, so yeah, it's just been an, an organic, excuse that pretentious word, um, process of, of from from being a fan to then being so heavily involved in in being a fan to, to the point where I start to contribute myself to the genre. Uh, I'd say it's pretty much like yourself with Starship Sofa. Oh well, you know what I mean. It, it, like I say, we were talking before it. You know what I mean. This is just kind of it, it's in your blood. You know what I mean. It's, it's week in, week out, and. I can't see anything else, you know what I mean? So, yeah. And it, especially with kind of Starship's over, it's given us the chance. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
the, you know, and I sometimes think about it, you know, looking back there now, I've interviewed, you know, all the kind of the big guys in the science fiction side of it. You know what I mean? I've kind of, I've even spoken to Ray Bradbury. Do you know what I mean? I was probably one of the last guys oh. to, to interview him. Do you know what I mean? And you think, yeah. wow, yeah. that's a, that's a kind of a plus. Do you know what I mean? And I was funny, you know, because I yeah. asked him, Apparently he's, he's very touchy about, he's not a science fiction writer. Well, I just had, you know, I was doing a series of interviews where you just had certain questions to ask. You know, you could only ask yeah. them questions. And one of them was, are you a science fiction writer? Well, bless him. <laughs> I mean, he was, he was 90 odd probably at the time. Do you know what I mean? But he's the venom in yeah. his voice. No! You know what I mean? Really? Oh, didn't yeah. Like so he didn't like, didn't like us asking him science fiction. And all these other questions, you know, he's dead sweet kind. But when I asked that kind of one question, you know what I mean? No! <laughs> you know what I mean? That was an incredible Hulk moment. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, it's like you say, so it's, you know, it's, it's a kind of, it's in your blood to do this as well. So, Wayne, it's been an absolute pleasure that, you know, to have a chat with you. And I love the kind of, like you say, you've, you've kind of had your roots in the horror and everyone's talking about this kind of science fiction novel that you wrote, you know what I mean? Everyone's itching for it to come out. The, you know, the kind of people are sport about it. You know, there's just everyone yeah. saying this is, you know, this is going to be something really special. So, and it's lovely, oh, to, like you say, lovely to get you on the show and, and talk about it. Oh, absolute pleasure. Anytime, Tony. Well, that's lovely. Well, Wayne, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Tony. Um, and uh, all the best to listeners. <laughs> So there you go. That was Wayne, talk, Wayne Simmons talking about his new novel, Plastic Jesus. Like I say, I put all links on. I put a link on to Wayne over on Facebook as well and his website. And like I say, the 1st of December, Plastic Jesus comes out from Salt Publishing and definitely a book to look out for. So next up is the main fiction, and it is by Alan Dean Foster. Now, for those who don't know Alan Dean Foster, I'll give you a little bio Born in New York City, 1946, Foster was raised in Los Angeles. After receiving a bachelor's degree in political science and a master's of fine arts in cinema from UCLA in 1968 and 69, he spent two years as a copyright for a small studio city, advertising and public relations firm. His writing career began when August Derleth bought a long look crafting letter of Foster's in 1968 and much to Foster's surprise published it as a short story in Derleth's biannual magazine, The Arkham Collector. Sales of short fiction to other magazines followed. His first attempt at a novel, The Tarium Krang, was bought by Betty Ballantyne and published by Ballantyne Books in 1972. It incorporates a number of suggestions from the famed SF editor, John W. Campbell. Since then, Foster's sometimes humorous, occasionally poignant, but always entertaining short fiction has appeared in all the major SF magazines, as well as in original anthologies and several best-of-year compendiums. His published overture includes more than a 100 books. Foster's work date includes excursions into hard science fiction, fantasy horror, detective western, historical and contemporary fiction. He has also written, written numerous non-fiction articles on film, science, scuba diving, as well as having produced the novel versions of many films, including such well-known publications or productions as Star Wars, the first three alien films, Alienation, great film that, The Chronicles of Riddick, Star Trek, Terminator, Salvation, and both Transformer films. 
Other works include scripts for talking records, radio, computer games, and the story of the first Star Trek movie. His novel Shadow Keep was the first ever book adaptation of an original computer game. In addition to publication in English, his work has been translated into more than 50 languages and has won awards in Spain and Russia. His novel Cyberware won the Southwest Book Award for Fiction in 1990, the first work of science fiction ever to do so. Now, this story is narrated by Gareth Stack. Gareth is a writer, performer, activist, and trainee psychotherapist. He lives and works in Dublin, Ireland. Some of his stuff is done here at GarethStack.com. There's a link on to Gareth's work. And like I say, Gareth, thank you so much, sir. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Claim Blame, a mad Amos Malone story by Alan Dean Foster. This be our mountain, and our mine, and nobody digs here without our permission. Peter O'Reilly turned beard and body to his partner, the mightily mustachioed Patrick McLaughlin, and then looked back down at the quartet of angry gnomes. Now, now, little friends, maybe we can work something out. What if we agreed to mine the shaft for shares? Now, wouldn't that be lovely? No shares, not lovely! Nor valsed. Chieftain of the gnomes wore suspended pants, work boots, a long-sleeved white shirt woven of some coarse, eldritch material, and a brown cap. His eyebrows were as white and heavy as his shirt, his mien uncompromising and foreboding, and his nose Herculean. His chest was broad, and downsized muscles bulged beneath the sleeves of his shirt. O'Reilly tried another tactic. We'll just take a quarter of the diggings. No quarter. We give none and take none. A second gnome, stocker and even more muscular than his chief, stepped forward. He held a miniature iron pick, threateningly. No shares or mountain or mines. We'll throw in whiskey. O'Reilly leaned over as far as he could go until his lean, jeaned form was all but face to face with the gnomic headman. Lots of whiskey. Tiny eyes nearly vanished beneath enormous ivory brows. No whiskey. His tone softened ever so slightly. If you had some real Branvin now. No. No shares! Now get off our mountain! And with that, he brought the flat of his small but surprisingly heavy shovel down square and hard on Peter O'Reilly's right foot. The miner stumbled back and howled as he grabbed at his insulted toes, but his yelp of pain wasn't half as loud as that of the battle cry of the gang of tetchy little men who now surged forward, swinging picks and hammers and shovels while shouting insults in several languages, a number of which had no honest counterpart amongst the nations of humankind. McLaughlin running and O'Reilly hopping, the two men beat a hasty retreat down the rocky, scrub-covered slope. The enraged gnomes chased them past their diggings, through their unprepossessing camp, and halfway to the river, before their anger finally subsided. At that point, they broke off the pursuit, and picks and shovels a blur seemed to melt back into the very ground itself. 
his heart hammering against his ribs. McLaughlin bent over and fought to catch his breath. <sighs> well, that's torn it. The little horse sons don't seem half inclined to negotiation. <sighs> A gasping O'Reilly nodded agreement. <gasps> Tis mighty unreasonable they're being pet. I say we toast the refusal with a few cans of black powder and leave the sort now to the Almighty. <sighs> Aye, but that might damage the pit. More work for us, and there'd be no guarantee it would loosen their grip or their determination to hold on to this piece of rock. He took a deep breath and considered the dry, uninhabited landscape. Maybe we should try and hire us some help. Still breathing hard, O'Reilly stretched. Joints cracked like popcorn. His expression was grim, his tone washed with bitter root. Sure and no, that's a fine idea, Pat. We'll just find ourselves a few of the locals and tell them we need their help driving a tribe of tiny divils off our claim. Bending over, he held one hand, palm facing downward, until it was a foot off the hard ground. This high they are, and miners like ourselves. Tis naught but a wee inconvenience that we need help with. He straightened again. We'll be laughed out of the Sierras. McLaughlin continued to gaze down the mountainside. That be true enough, Peter, though the last time we went into town for supplies, I heard of a gentleman lingering hereabouts who, if the whispers and tales about him are half to be believed, might be inclined to take the reality of our difficulties to heart and without scorn. O'Reilly sniffed. One man? Did you not see the size of the little monster's army? Sure, we'd need as many guns to fight them, Pat. Guns aplenty, and men with no fear of the unnatural to hold them back from using them. For this be no ordinary bit of intervention we're dealing with. Still looking down the raw, rugged mountainside, McLaughlin stroked his moustache, the twin points of which drooped to below his chin. Strange as it seems, Peter, I heard somewhat the same about this particular fella. Well, good sir, uh, we got gnomes, sir, sitting by the side of the creek that hemmed the little valley as prettily as a blue ribbon around the brim of a young girl's bonnet. The giant, in the buckskins and leather, puffed thoroughly on his meerschaum as he contemplated both the stream and his visitor's problem. A wolf's head bonnet covered but could not constrain the mad dash of black and grey hair that spilled out behind and to the sides. While McLaughlin waited patiently, and O'Reilly wondered if confronting this brooding accretion of undisciplined humanity was such a good idea, Amos Malone silently pondered water, greenery, rock, and infinity. Eventually he turned and rose, and rose and rose until Peter O'Reilly was convinced he and his partner had made a bad decision indeed. With a smile that materialised amidst a vast flush of beard, Malone put them at ease. What kind of gnomes? The supplicants exchanged a glance. McLaughlin spoke up. Well, no, Mr. Malone, sir, we don't rightly know the classification of supernatural folk not being among our general store of expertise. They're miners, sir, O'Reilly put in. Sitting on our claim, they are, and won't get off. 
We offered them free shares in all our takings, we did, and they outright refused, resorting to hostilities to force us off what's rightly ours. Malone tapped the bowl of his pipe on a rock, checked the interior, then consigned it carefully to the depths of a pocket in his enormous shirt. McLaughlin could have sworn he heard the pale, graven face on the pipe let out a small cough. Rightly yours. O'Reilly didn't hesitate. That be God's honest truth, sir. Worked that claim for weeks now we have. Got the proper papers and all. Had weak luck we did, until Mother Fate took pity on us and all our hard work. He grinned, showing a miner's typical assortment of damaged orthodonture. About to give up on the place he was, abandon the claim, as it were. When wouldn't you know it, we discovered that the bottom of the pit we'd sunk merely to collect water for our rockers was layered with gold. McLaughlin nodded confirmation. Enough to make us rich right quick it is, or it was until these little men showed up and drove us off our land. Off our own claim. Talk like foreigners too, O'Reilly added darkly, conveniently discounting his own transatlantic origins. Ah, see. Malone was walking towards his horse as he spoke, compelling the miners to follow. The mountain man's mount, McLaughlin observed, was of dimensions in keeping with that of Malone himself, though for the life of him the miner could not identify the elephantine breed. And what is it exactly you fellers want of me? Once again the partners made eye talk. There's whispering around these parts, McLaughlin began hesitantly, the two, sir, are conversant with certain branches and aspects of uh, knowledge that are denied the average man. Given our distressed circumstances, it would seem you would be the one hereabouts in possession of sufficient education in such matters to cope with our um, y- unique difficulty. Malone looked back at the miner. As he did so, McLaughlin could have sworn that the mountain man's wolf cap looked down at him as well. No. A far-off look came into Malone's eyes. Don't much care for myself. His voice grew faint with reminiscence. There was that time in Trondheim. Towering over the two men, he nodded curtly. Right then, I reckon we can go and have a chat with your gnomish interlopers. Ain't no harm in a friendly powwow, even with gnomes. Beyond that, I make no promises. That'd be, that'd be fine, sir. That'd be fine, yeah. McLaughlin was beaming, his partner still wary. Now then, Mr. Malone, sir, if you wish to discuss the matter of payment for your services... In truth, we're just poor, hard scrapers, but I swear we'll do our best to make this right by you. Again, Malone flashed the broad smile that showed his teeth were, if not else, at least as impressive as the rest of him. Let's first see what it is exactly we're dealing with here, gentlemen. Then we'll speak of doing good by it. Without another word, and displaying a surprising litheness of movement, he swung himself up onto the massive saddle. At this, his mount looked back at him, let out a disgusted snort, spat something on the ground, that for just the barest fraction of an instant, 
lay smoking and started off into the hills. It occurred to O'Reilly that although he had not seen Malone pull on the reins, the horse had started off in the correct direction. A fluke, he thought, as he and McLaughlin headed to where they had secured their own horses to a nearby tree. And no doubt typical of Malone himself, the man seemed a collection of flukes, not all of them necessarily benign. Which, given the current situation he and his partner were facing, might not entirely be a bad thing. It was late afternoon when they finally arrived back at their diggings. To the miners' great relief, nothing appeared to have been disturbed. Their tent still stood while the rest of their meagre belongings and supplies remained where they had been left. As for the pit itself, that stained glory hole to be, as near as they could tell, it had not been filled in or otherwise damaged. Except for some scattered brush, the slope where they had been working so hard was still barren and unappealing. It mattered not. That which was truly worthwhile lay below ground and out of sight, but not hopefully, for long. Dismounting, Malone studied his immediate surroundings. The slope was crusted with gravel and broken rock, like crumbs on a coffee cake. Of the miner's tiny tormentors, there was no sign, a fact which he immediately pointed out to his anxious hosts. No need to concern yourself on that score, Mr Malone, sir. McLaughlin was solemn in the face of expectation. We know how to summon them forth. With that, he and his partner set to work, using bucket and winch to draw water as well as gravel and sand from the pit, dumping it in the big rocker and working it through, cursing all the while. As soon as they finished, they presented the rocked batch for Malone's inspection. See the gold, sir? O'Reilly did not try to hide his excitement and enthusiasm. Almost washes itself out, if not for all the blue-black glare that surrounds it, clogs the rocker that muck does, and just makes for more work. Malone nodded sagely. Gold it is, feller me lad. You two have struck it fair. Nothing fair about it. The voice was high-pitched, but insistent. The mountain man turned, where moments earlier there had been only scrub-laden hillside, there now stood a mass of small menfolk. Armed with the tools of their trade, they glared ominously at the intruders. Before Malone could respond, O'Reilly was replying, while being careful to remain behind the bigger man and keeping his feet well out of shovel range. Sure, and we're back, you little bugger mothers. You say this is your mountain. Well, we've brought a mountain of our own. The leader of the gnomes tilted his head back to gaze up at the hireling, and back and back until his small, thick neck could abide no further inclination. Malone reacted by kneeling before him. Although appreciative of this courtesy, the chief let out a small but distinct grunt of disapproval. Matters not how big you be, sir. There are many of us, and should you choose to interfere in this private matter, we will cut you down to size as quick as we can make and shore across tunnel. Now then, Hovding, there be no need for threatening here. Malone gestured back to where the two miners stood watching, at once fascinated 
and fearful. Let's talk this out in the manner of a proper stam and see if we can't come to a conclusion that leaves all parties equally satisfied and content. The chief's enormous eyebrows rose in surprise. You know a little of the true speak. What manner of man be you? A mannered one, I reckon. These fellers say this year mine is theirs. I don't expect they need the whole mountain to satisfy their claim. He squinted upslope. Seems to me there's plenty of room for all of you. They say they filed right and proper papers to this place. That's right. Coming forward, O'Reilly pulled from his shirt pocket a sheet of paper that he proceeded to unfold and thrust first at the gnome, then at Malone. All registered correct, as any fool can plainly see, no matter his size. The mountain man smiled thinly. Perhaps best not to inject matters of size into this discussion, Mr. O'Reilly. Bah! Turning, the gnome made a short, sharp gesture. One of his tribe promptly scurried forth. Slighter in build than the majority of his fellows, he wore a red cap with a bent peak and thick glasses. From within a multitude of pockets in his oversized jacket, he drew forth a scroll. This he proceeded to unroll until it stretched from his ink-stained fingers past his chief, past Malone, past the two startled miners, past the assembled horses, and another ten yards down the mountainside, before the end finally came to rest against a creosote bush. The chieftain of the gnomes punctuated this presentation with a derisive sniff. Our claim, deed. Now wait a minute, McLaughlin began, but Malone had already begun to read the extensive document. How he could discern the tiny print, much less make sense of the lines of gibberish that to O'Reilly looked like nothing more than chicken scratches, neither miner could imagine. With a speed that astonished even the gnomes, the mountain man had soon scanned the entire lengthy document. Having concluded his unnaturally swift perusal, he handed the massive paper back to the care of the gnomish clerk, who, muttering under his breath, entered into the arduous task of re-rolling it. Their deed, he informed the two restless miners, appears... To be in order. Barely restraining his outrage, O'Reilly shook their own deed at the diminutive chieftain. Sure, and tis enough of this. Where is it registered, hum? Ours comes right and true from the territorial agency in Genoa. Where is his registered? The chief folded his stubby but powerful arms and replied defiantly, Asgard. McLaughlin sniffed disdainfully. Ain't never heard of no Asgard, Nevada territory. Nonetheless, Malone told him, they have a legitimate claim. He looked back at the chieftain and his assembled prickly tribe. They were just itching for a fight. You could smell it. Nor were they put off by Malone's size. Such a reaction was to be expected, he knew, of folk who spent their considerable lives underground while hewing their way through solid rock. Rising from his crouch, he turned and headed in the direction of his mount. 
Equally anxious, the two miners followed close on his heels, clinging to him like remoras to a shark. Sir, Mr Malone, sir, you're not leaving us now, are you? You promised to help. Checking the straps on his saddlebags, Malone looked down at him. I said I'd come and have a look-see at your problem. That I have done. I did not know that your rival claimants also had a deed. It would appear to me, fellers, that you have a situation here. One that is on your hands, not mine. But what are we to do? O'Reilly was wringing his hands. We'd fight them, but though they be small, there be many of them. A throbbing in his right big toe brought uncomfortable remembrance to the fore. They have weapons. Malone seemed to hesitate. Then he stopped what he was doing and turned back to the two men. Behind him, his mount rolled its eyes and neighed disgustedly. I'll not get in the middle of a fight where both sides have a claim to right, wrong, and gold. But though I'll not engage in any fighting, I did say I would help if I could, and so it shall be. Removing a round, fist-sized green bottle from one saddlebag, he began to retrace his steps towards the diggings. Gleeful as schoolboys, the miners followed. Desperate to maintain the flow of conversation, McLaughlin gestured at the bottle. As pretty a piece of crystal as a lady's perfume container, sir. Where be the cutlass from? New York, Paris? No place whose name you'd know, Malone informed him. And tis not less. It's an emerald. The miner expressed surprise. Do you mean to say, sir, that that there bottle is made of emeralds? No. I said it is an emerald. In front of them, on the far side of the camp, the gnomish throng still waited. At the return of the miners and the mountain man, small, calloused hands tightened determinedly on the hardwood shafts of picks and shovels. Hard rock chisels were drawn from belts and readied to be used as knives. Shovels were turned sharp edge on towards the three approaching humans. Malone halted well short of the impending confrontation. Having seen the hexagonal barreled sharps slung across the back of Malone's mount, O'Reilly was surprised the mountain man had not brought the enormous gun with him. Perhaps, he thought, the giant was intending to do battle solely with the Lamat pistol holstered at his belt. In truth, Malone had no intention of employing either weapon. He turned to confront the uneasy miners. Now then, you sons of the outside, I'm going to need a smidgen of your blood. Subsequent to which declaration of intent, he removed from his belt a bowie knife, which in size would not have been out of place among the flailing swords at Agincourt. Noting the untrammeled shock on the faces of the two men, Malone hesitated a moment, realised his mistake, and smiled sheepishly. Sorry, fellers. I was for a moment distracted. To the great relief of the miners, he replaced the enormous blade in its sheath and fumbled in several pockets before withdrawing a pencil-sized length of steel that gleamed in the setting sun. 
This year's a mite better for the purpose, I reckon. Not to mention for your constitution. Stepping forward, he placed the business end of the scalpel against O'Reilly's thumb and drew back the blade with a precision and delicacy of touch that would have drawn the admiration of Boston's finest surgeons. Anticipating the cut, the miner grimaced, but did not cry out. Turning to the nervous McLaughlin, Malone repeated the action. Then he stepped back. Hold out your thumbs and let the blood fall upon the land you claim as your own. Do it now. The booming command was enough to focus the miners' attention, and they hastened to comply. Red blood dripped from the twin cuts to stain the dry earth. Removing the stopper from the bottle he had brought with him, Malone poured the green contents onto the ground where it mixed with the miners' blood. A glutinous mist began to form. Taking a tentative sniff, McLaughlin was surprised to find that the fog smelt of clover. Raising his other enormous arm over his head, Malone seemed to strike the darkening sky as he thundered, The strange words meant nothing to McLaughlin, but O'Reilly's eyes grew wide. He hadn't heard the original language of his people spoken since as a child he had come to the new world with his parents. The liquid vowels sang in his ears as the mountain man's invocation echoed off the stony hillsides. The massive gnomes drew back a step or two, but they did not flee. A low, ominous cloud bank was coalescing, taking shape between them and the miners. It was damp and Icarus and shot through with green lightning. Behind the men, the miners' horses stamped, whinnied and rolled their eyes as they fought to stampede. Meanwhile, Malone's mount mustered a single, squint-eyed glance in the direction of the crackling, boiling cloud, shook his head, and returned to placidly cropping the sparse ground cover, as if nothing was amiss with the world. When at last the furious lightning ceased flashing and the final echo of thunder rolled into the distance, the cloud bank dissipated to reveal a second host of small men. But their beards, which were varied and profuse and in general more thoroughly combed, tended to blonde and black rather than gnomish white. Instead of attire suitable for digging, their garments tended to the loose and colourful. This fashion extended to their hats, which were equally as diverse as their facial hair, and their boots, which were universally black. McLaughlin might not have remembered the Gaelic of his family, but for anyone who hailed from the old country, there was no mistaking the identity of the multitude of newcomers. Sure and begara, he declared breathily, but they cannot be anything but leprechauns. Leprechauns? Standing beside his partner, O'Reilly was no less dazed by the manifestation. No, it cannot be. Whereupon one standing in the forefront of the diminutive newcomers turned, strode directly towards the two men, and promptly whacked the hesitant miner's right foot with the stout and finely carved shillig he carried. Who cannot be, you daft mental malingerer? 
whirling to find himself confronted by Malone, the pint-sized combatant raised black eyebrows that terminated in neatly quaffed points. Mother McCree, tis the giant who built the causeway. Taking a deep whiff of the mountain man, he wrinkled up a considerable nose. And with a pong to match the rest of them. Beer grease. Malone was apologetic. Good for healing cracked heels. Gah! Retreating several steps, the Taoiseach of the leprechauns pointedly waved a hand back and forth in front of his face. For what mysterious end have ye drawn us, unwilling and in haste, for this godforsaken place, monster? Malone nodded towards the staring, open-mouthed miners. Two of your ex-countrymen need your help in a matter of land use. Land use, is it? Forcing himself to ignore the piquant fragrance rising from the vicinity of the mountain man's feet, the stocky green-clad figure tapped his open palm with the shillig. A problem with the British again. Not exactly. Turning, Malone indicated the throng of watching gnomes. Your relations have a small mine on this here land. These knackle-broad-eating immigrants from the Northeast likewise claim it as their own, and are uncommon insistent on keeping it all for themselves. Ardino, a mine, you say? Malone nodded. And why should me and the rest of the boys get ourselves involved in a dispute between men, offspring of errant though they be, and mice? Say there no, stranger, began the chief of the gnomes, but the rest of his words were drowned out by a desperate McLaughlin. We'll, we'll pay you, the miners spoke without hesitation. We, we know, I, I remember, that your kind is fond of gold. We have gold in our mine. Raising a hand, he pointed towards the pit. Gold now, is it? The dark eyes of the leprechaun Taoiseach glittered. "'Tis hardly fair to tempt a leprechaun with gold, but in this instance we'll let it pass. He straightened as much as his foot-high body would allow. "'Sure, and we'll help you then, boys. We'll save your claim for you, and leave with nothing but a fair share of the shiny stuff, no more than is needed to uh, fill a few kettles.' O'Reilly found himself suddenly reluctant, but as the two miners conversed, and McLaughlin pointed out, what choice do they have? Having taken stock of the matter, the giant mountain man was clearly inclined to wash his hands of it. They would have to engage supernatural help from the old country, or none at all. It's a bargain, then. McLaughlin stuck out his hand, and O'Reilly matched him a second later, but by that time the Taoiseach of the green-clad visitants had already raised his shillig high above his head and was leading a raucous charge in the direction of the waiting gnomes. What a frabulous confusion there thence ensued. What a furor, a fight, what a conflagration of physical confrontation. The hills were alive with the sound of cursing in Gaelic and Norse and half a dozen other tongues not utilised in such scandalous fashion since the old gods fled the noisome proximity of a fecund humanity for the peace and contentment of another worldly retirement among the clouds. Sticks and shovels clashed, knees were raised, heads were butted and butts were kicked. There was punching and screaming and biting and insulting on a scale all out of proportion to the size of those doing the wielding, and more than once twas the words and not the weapons that inflicted the deepest damage.
Keeping well clear of the downsized but decidedly ferocious mayhem that was taking a steady toll on small arms, legs, faces, torsos and groins, Peter O'Reilly and Patrick McLaughlin looked on with trepidation lest the fury on the mountainside expand to include and overwhelm the boulder behind which they had taken precipitous refuge. Meanwhile, an estimably nonchalant Amos Malone built a fire and made supper. The fighting surged back and forth past sunset, and onto the night, with neither side being able to gain an advantage, there was a fair amount of blood, a lot of bruising and contusing, but no deaths amongst the hardy and determined combatants. It was only when the upper half of a shattered shillig smashed into his campfire and upset his coffee pot thus causing the pungent contents to spill out upon the surrounding rocks where they dissolved several chunks of quartz-laden granite that Malone finally had enough. Sure, and he's up. What? What? O'Reilly blinked tiredly, having fallen asleep despite the noise of the boisterous conflict. The mountain man, he's up. McLaughlin pointed. Maybe he's finally going to do something. The other miner rubbed at his eyes. Don't see why he didn't in the first place. Big as he is, I expect if he wanted to, he could flatten the lot of them, both sides. McLaughlin was nodding agreement. I don't know what stopped him. Scruples or something. Ignoring the blizzard of flying wood and mining implements, Malone waded into the thick of the fighting. From time to time, an addled leprechaun or disorientated gnome would mistakenly take a swing at him. Shilligs bounced off iron-like legs, and set their owners to vibrating helplessly, as did shovels and hammers. One swarthy gnome, who did his best to drive the point of his pickaxe into a gargantuan thigh, found the tip bent in half by long-worn leather so infused with sweat, animal fat, and impregnated meteoric dust that the pants were as stiff and hard as Galahad's armour. Now look here! It was a command that rumbled and reverberated across the battleground, raced avalanche-like down the slope, and sufficiently unsettled a pair of wandering grizzlies so badly that they fell all over themselves in their haste to flee the immediate neighbourhood. Fighting halted immediately as each and every undersized combatant turned to look in the direction from whence the bellowing had arisen. Malone's voice dropped from the apocalyptic to the merely stentorian. It's plain clear that this ain't going nowhere, and it's getting there fast. I said I wouldn't take no sides in this ear fracas, and I intend to keep true to my words. But there's been enough bashing and thrashing this night fit to unsettle half a dozen worlds, and it's time twas settled. Searching the battlefield, he sought out and found the hoveding of the gnomes. I've a proposition for you and your tribe, sir, if you'll lend me an ear. Well, his chubby face Dirty and streaked, and a deep bruise showing on one arm, the gnome chieftain gripped his left ear and began to bring up the cold chisel he held in his other hand. No, no, Malone said quickly. 
Just heave to and give a listen. The chief lowered the chisel. Now then, the mountain man began. At heart, this is all about gold. Sure ain't it always. Having come up behind him, the leader of the leprechauns was paying close attention. What if, Malone continued, still addressing himself to the gnomish chieftain, I promised to send you and your fellows to a place where there's more gold than is to be found on your claim here. A place where folks like these... And with a gesture, he indicated the two distant but not disinterested miners. Won't bother you for a while at least. A place where you can mine away to your mean-spirited little heart's content. The chief considered. It was a bold and generous offer, to be sure. That was, if in truth it was more than just a promise. He studied the hulking mountain man closely. And if we should accept, who be you, sir, to carry out such an audacious enterprise? I am Amos Malone. The chief of the gnomes started visibly. I've heard of you. Even down the deep dirt, that name. Rings fondly, Malone opined. Nay, sets off alarms. White brows drew together. It said even in Nilfalheim that you are quite mad. I occasionally get upset. It's true. Malone wished for the pleasure of his pipe, but now was not the time to break away for a smoke. But I hold to my word. Will you and yours break off this futile conniption and accept my proposal? The chief paused, then turned and moved to rejoin the mass of his fellows. There followed a good deal of gnomish disputation, at the conclusion of which the chieftain returned to the waiting Malone and stuck out a thickly calloused hand. Is a bargain, then, if... You can deliver your side of it. A bargain set. Malone straightened. Tilting back his head, he studied the sky, inhaled deeply of the air, felt carefully of the ground with his booted feet. He was here. They needed to be there. The projected transposition had to be voluntary on the part of those being sent. Otherwise, he could have tried it earlier. But he disliked involving himself in mass transplantations. They tended to induce colic. Stepping clear of the assembled little people, he once again raised an arm, the left one this time. As he declaimed, he waved his hand towards the mob of watching gnomes. The result was to dust them with a sprinkling of clotted bear fat and jerked deer meat with a pinch of eagle feather added for thaumaturgic seasoning. Whether one happened to be conversant with transcendental auguries or not, this would not have struck a casual onlooker as a particularly efficacious combination. Gnome-legged, ham-fran, flagger-till-gould, tear-dead-strover. A white cloud appeared. Broad and capacious, it descended slowly to cover the assembled gnomes until at last it reached the ground. The last thing O'Reilly and McLaughlin saw of their gnomish tormentors was the chief, 
glaring at them and threatening murder and dismemberment if Malone failed to follow through on his promise. Then the cloud, like a prime San Francisco fog, lifted and was gone. With it went the gnomes, down to the last sharpened pick and pointed cap. You did it! McLaughlin sprinted to the mountain man's side. They're gone, they're really gone! Wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't seen it with my own two eyes. O'Reilly would have broken out in a jig, but he was too emotionally and physically exhausted. And now, sirs, if tis all right with you, we'll be collecting our pay for doing the fighting that led to this happy conclusion. With that, the Taoiseach of the Leprechauns was off to give orders to his green-clad troops. The lot of them were soon busy bustling over the miner's pit. Osgrad stood beside his chief, his eyes wild with anger. He's cheated us. The great lumbering smelly man has cheated us. With one short, thick arm, he gestured at the wild ocean before them. This is no new habitation, but home. Nay, stand and consider a moment. Norvaltst, the chief, gestured at the white-capped sea, beside which he and his tribe had been deposited. This is not our ancient coast. Smell, drink deep of it. It's not the same. The land is similar, the climate familiar, a sea alike. Yet, all are different. Reluctantly, his second-in-command complied. As he did so, some but not all of his initial fury faded. So I can see the point. Another sea it is, but of gold I smell not. It's here. Norvalst turned a slow circle. I can feel it. At that moment, several of their companions came running towards them. In their cupped hands, they held sand taken from the nearby beach. Amongst the particles of quartz and feldspar were flecks and nodules of gold. Norvalst looked upon this wonder and was pleased. Even Osgrad experienced a deeply felt change of heart. I am ashamed. The giant was not merely true to his word. He bested it. Who could think of such a thing? A beach full of gold. Turning, he surveyed the frozen, barren landscape that was so like that of their ancestral home. This will make a fine place to live, and no humans. No. Kneeling, Norvalst picked up some of the gold-rich sand that had been deposited there and let it trickle free between his fingers. But they will come. Sooner or later, they will come here. Humans always find such places. Yet this, I predict, the first of them will be men who know and respect us, and so will not interfere with our dwelling underground in this land. Others will follow and settle here, and though they know us not, will call it after us. Rising, he spread his arms wide, ignoring the chill arctic wind that was whipping his shirt around him. This place will be known as the City of the Gnomes. As black kettle after black kettle was lifted from the pit, the unsettling sensation that had started in the pits of the miners' stomachs grew progressively more discomforting. A lot of gold are taken out! A patently unhappy O'Reilly was chewing on his lower lip as he followed the procedure. An awful lot, 
agreed his partner, edgily. Their fair share. Having relit his pipe, Malone gazed down at the two men. You agreed, unless both of you wish a shilling up your respective fundaments, I wouldn't interfere. Also, I've seen the blight and sickness these folk can inflict on those who cross them. What? Malone could not help himself. What happens to those who do? Why, they find themselves transformed forever to dwell ill and afflicted amongst those whom they have tried to cheat. The tiny fires of hell bristled in the bowl of his pipe. They become leprechauns. The late rising moon was still in ascent when the last of the enchanted little people from the old country paid their farewells. Tired and sore, but demonstrably content, the Tisha confronted Malone, where he was seated by his campfire. "'Twas an experience as unique as it was unexpected to be called hither by you, Amos Malone, a rather son of Isaintach. Malone smiled pleasantly. "'I quite agree. That which is strange is wonderful.' One would almost think you had a bit of the green in you yourself. I am a reservoir to all shades of magic, the mountain man told him. When I ain't skinning beaver, that is. He nodded towards the other side of the fire, which blazed no less bright than the lights at the bottom of his jet-black eyes. Best to tell your people over there that worthless ain't for stealing. Couple of your boyos already tried when I was busy seeing off your Northlander counterparts. The leprechaun was mightily offended. Sir, you accuse my men of attempted theft. I withdraw my compliments, sir. Malone shrugged. As you will. While you're at it, you might withdraw the last of your innocence from Worthless's immediate environs. I'm afraid not all of them escaped his attentions. Uncertain, the leprechaun leader beckoned for several of his followers to join him. None offered an apology, but when the enormous equine lifted his right front foot off the ground and revealed what was stuck to the bottom of his hoof, they set to work scraping off the greenish remains with uncommon alacrity. The last of them had vanished when a cry rang out from the vicinity of the mine pit. Peter O'Reilly's anguished wail rose above the crackle of Malone's fire and the sound of the night. Gone! It's all gone! They've taken everything! Then he was charging down the hillside towards Malone. McLaughlin tried but was unable to stop his partner from getting right up in the mountain man's face. The smell notwithstanding. You son of a bitch! You let them take all our gold! All the trouble and fighting for nothing! We'd have been better off dealing with the gnomes ourselves! We could have given them 90% cheer and still been better off than this! Go have let! Throughout the full length of the miners' diatribe, Malone had continued staring at the fire. Now he lifted his gaze. What the irate miner saw there made him draw back behind his fury. 
I'd calm down if I were you, feller me lad. It's said that too much anger can be hard on a man's health. As for your suggestion, I've already been to hell and back. Thank you very much. McLaughlin was pulling his friend away now to one side of the fire and trying desperately to settle him down. Realising he had no real hope of taking out his frustration on the giant mountain man and that it didn't matter anymore now the gold was gone, O'Reilly fell to sobbing. Gone! All gone! Spirited back to the old country in a damn lot of kitchen pots, no less. And us that set it in motion left with nothing. I wouldn't say that. Malone rose. You still have your claim. I reckon there's still some gold in it. Pushing away his partner's attempts at comfort, an unashamed O'Reilly wiped at his eyes. All the gold's gone, taken by that lot of unscrupulous green midgets. Nuggets and dust just lying there in the water at the bottom of the pit, waiting to be scooped up. I'm sure they did the scooping. What's left, if anything, is for hard rock mining, for them that has the resources. Or the will. Malone had walked over to his horse and was making preparations to depart. McLaughlin could have sworn the empty coffee pot hopped up into an open saddlebag all by itself. But then it was dark now. You two can do it if you've the backbone. Get alone, hire help, do the work. The difficult work. His tone hardened. Instead of trying to bring out the gold with buckets and wishes. Oh, sure it's easy for you to say. Though not as impetuous, McLaughlin was no less upset than his partner. Do you know what hard rock mining entails, Mr. Malone? Tough work. Dedication. Drive. The mountain man paused. Or I reckon you could sell out to someone who has those qualities you seem to find so elusive. Right, a despondent O'Reilly laughed. Who'd be fool enough to buy a claim from which the easy gold has been taken and the rest of which is a mess of rocker ruining blue-black muck? He'd have to be half crazy. Got just the man for you. Malone mounted up. Old Pancake. McLaughlin frowned. TP, you're right, he is half crazy. He shook his head. Why out this gutted claim? What a load. Couldn't have put it better myself, Mr. McLaughlin. Work it yourself or sell out. Tis up to you, as life is to any man. Meanwhile, you might have a closer look at your blue-black glar. Huh. O'Reilly spat, but sideways, careful to lead with the liquid well away from the mountain man. Reckon we might as well entertain offers, if anyone's loony enough to actually be interested. A man's life teeters on such choices. Once again, Malone did nothing to the reins, yet his animal began to move as if he had been clearly instructed, or perhaps had decided to start off on his own. The two miners watched as the enigmatic mountain man disappeared over a ridge, his departure silhouetted by the moon as he passed in front of it, or maybe over it. To the end of their days, 
they could never decide which. There you go. What a great story. Alan, thank you so much. And Gareth, thank you so much for a fantastic narration there. <laughs> Amazing. Don't forget, copyright is Alan Dean Foster's. Again, Alan, what a star. Thank you so much. So that is today's show. And like I say, we, we, we've been on a bit of a trek there, you know, kind of donations and prepping years there for sofa notes. Don't forget, this is how we get it out, you know, by the, the, the kindness and the generosity of yourselves there. So do think about donating, do think about coming over to the Sofa Notes when that launches in January. There you go. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1... This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.